Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following program includes discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Robin. Many years ago, Robin's partner, Colin, killed himself. And a few years ago, she herself had her own brush with death. So, hello, Robin. Hi, Shirley. (laughs) Tell us a bit about Colin. Uh, About Colin as a person? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Well, Colin... um, Colin... I met Colin when I bought a car of Colin. And uh, he was a vibrant, full of life, uh, incredibly vivacious, smart, um, compelling kind of person. And uh, so much so that when he delivered the car, he actually never left. He just stayed. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he was a really um, appealing, lovely, charismatic person. Yeah. Now... You described to me having to identify his body after he died. Yes. Tell me about that. That was um, that was shocking in that, you know, as you would imagine. Um, but it was, I guess I was in shock. But I, he had been missing for several days. Um, so when the call came from the police that they had found someone that they believed to be Colin. Um, That in itself was not a surprise, but the process was kind of shocking. Meeting the police at the hospital, so this was in Auckland, it was Auckland City Hospital, (coughs) and... um, and, and being led through the back door of what was then the morgue, and walking past these doors that were labelled, they were big sort of metal doors um, that obviously had uh, other bodies inside, Uh, you know, partly decomposed, very decomposed. This is what the signs were on the doors. So that was kind of, um, kind of, it was like, it was surreal. It was like being in in a TV program or something. Um, and then you go past all of that major reality check stainless steel stuff and then you walk into the sort of carpeted room with chairs and um, a big window with um, a curtain across the window and the curtains weren't quite closed I was there with a friend um, fortunately and I could just catch a glimpse through the gap between the curtains of um, uh, I could see his running shoes I knew it was him so 
he was obviously fully clothed and, and was lying on a on a gurney sort of a thing, I guess. And uh, so then they just sort of say, you know, are you ready? And you go, yes, and they open the curtains and there is the person almost just kind of suspended in the next room. And, yeah, so it's, it's kind of an interesting, surreal, incredibly intimate and difficult, but at the same time distant and clinical. It's a weird juxtaposition of a scenario. Yeah, and you can't quite kind of believe that you're there. Mm. Mm. And you described that the funeral that followed was similarly weird. What yeah. was weird about the funeral? <laughs> what was weird about the funeral? Lots of things were weird about the funeral. I think I think uh, because it was such a shocking death, um, it was... Uh, you, I, w- I was still struggling to come to grips with it and um, Colin's funeral was seven days after he died and because there were family coming from overseas um, and uh, so I had spent a lot of time with him uh, in the funeral home talking to him and um, you know, I'd basically spent seven days, most of each day, sitting with him. But even despite having had that opportunity and to say goodbye in a, in a fairly drawn-out way and, you know, to express all the emotions and all the things that you're feeling, and um, the funeral still seems... I don't know, for me, even though there was such uh, support, tremendous support from people, and a lot of people there that I didn't know, I knew he'd spent a lot of time in the army years and years and years previously, uh, there was a huge contingent from the army that turned up, which I was really surprised about. It was fantastic. He would be so thrilled. <laughs> but it seems kind of contrived. You do this dance, you go through the motions, and it's all orchestrated very carefully and incredibly professionally and sympathetically by the funeral directors and you literally just are going through the motions it's really strange and I've you know been to been to lots of funerals um, but when I don't know if it's because of the way he died or just because I was finding it hard to come to terms with the fact that he'd gone um this was unlike any funeral. I mean, I've been to my father's funeral, I've been to my grandparents' funerals. They felt more real. Yeah. So why was there an army contingent there? Because he had been in the army and he was so... <laughs> he had been... He'd had a lot of interesting adventures in the army and so they were there to, um, I guess, salute him one last time, literally. Right. Yeah. Was there any expectation on you as his partner to entertain guests in yes. any way. And so, how was that? Um, it was really interesting. So Colin and I had lived in a really tiny wee place in Ponsonby and uh, everybody that wanted to came back to our place and there were a lot of people there, like the army guys, that I just did not know. That was really fascinating because um, they obviously didn't know me either and so they came and told me stories about him that I hadn't, wasn't aware of, which I've now been able to relay to our son. 
And um, there was one man who uh, had been in the army, now works, or at that time worked for a bank, and he wrote to me afterwards and said, you need to know all this stuff. And he just relayed all these fantastic stories about um, crazy and brave things that Colin had done and why the men under his command um, were so um, committed to him and his leadership. So that was really, those are lovely stories that we would never have known. Yeah. But again, you're still just doing that. I'm amazed that I can remember so much of it. It is like doing a, a strange dance. Now, you've mentioned your son. You yes. were pregnant at the time Colin killed himself. Yes. How was that for you? Was it helpful being pregnant or was it harder to deal with his death? It was a massive relief that I was pregnant because, um, uh, well, it was my first child, so I didn't know how it was, how it normally feels to be pregnant with your first child with a partner, but um, uh, I knew that this baby was, despite what happened, um, I knew that this baby was really, really important to Colin, really, really important to me, and it was, um, you know, it was one last amazing thing that he had left me, and I know that sounds selfish because it makes it about me and not about my son, but um, mm. it made it a lot easier. It made it, it, I felt, still felt very, very connected to Colin and to the baby, Yeah. So that was a that was a really good thing. I was so fortunate. Did you tell your son about how his dad had died? Eventually. So when uh, when he was he's he grew up knowing that his dad had died. Uh, so he was um, he always knew that his dad wasn't there and that his dad had died. Um, and I told. I, I sought advice from a psychologist, from a child psychologist, about how best to broach it because I knew that at some point he needed to know the truth. And so when he was, um, I think, eight, uh, it felt like the right time to tell him. And so I sought advice and got excellent, excellent advice from the psychologist who said to me, um, don't expect your son to have the same response that you had. Um, we have no idea how he will respond. It may not be with massive overwhelming grief or horror or it may not be any of the things that you anticipate. So allow him to feel this in his own way. The other amazing piece of advice she gave me was um, that uh, he may feel differently about how his dad died it may affect him differently at different times of his life so for instance if he has children he may revisit this and feel differently about it so I, I've there are amazingly wise pieces of advice that helped helped a lot yeah and how did you feel towards Colin after he had killed himself I the fact that he killed himself wasn't an enormous shock to me. I mean, it, it was on one the reality of what it meant was a shock. The fact that it happened was not a shock. Um, and 
so I don't know. People talk about feeling angry. I don't think I ever felt angry. Um, and I still don't feel angry at him for doing that. I feel that he... Um, he made the choice that he unfortunately thought was the best choice. I don't agree that it was the best choice. Um, I don't really agree that it's ever the best choice. But who are we to decide? And so I guess I got to the place that this cannot be undone. Um, it's already been done. It can't. There's no bringing him back. So we have to accept and respect that he made the best decision for himself at that time with the information that he had, mm-hmm. which maybe wasn't all the information, but it was all he had, all he thought he had. So I think acceptance um, is the most respectful thing you can do for the person that's made that choice. Yeah. Now you've had your own and brush with death as it were and um, tell me about that Um, so that was uh, in 2015 and um, I got sick uh, and like acutely sick um, over one weekend went to the hospital thank goodness for my friend that made me go to the hospital and uh was diagnosed that night with um, bowel cancer. Uh, my father had died of bowel cancer um, about 13 years before. Uh, and so my initial response, and he yeah, he died, so my initial response was, oh God, <laughs> this is how it's going to be. This is how I'm going to go. And... Um, because you know my mum is elderly and because um, so I, I subsequently married um, sometime after Colin's death and had another child but um, am separated from um, her dad so I kind of felt incredible who, who lives in another city didn't live he lived in Dunedin then um, but I felt very responsible for my mum and for my kids and thought, oh, my God, <laughs> who's going to look after these people? Which was a crazy thought because I've got um, – it's a very small immediate family but quite an extensive um, whanau. Uh, so there, were, there are lots of people um, who can care for those people. But the, um, yeah, the overriding thing was – this is really bad timing. <laughs> this needs this needed to happen further down the track, not right now. But that was kind of an initial response, and um, that that whanau really packed in around us, and uh, we got great support from school and from you know friends. So we were able to work our way through it, and. Um, you know, big shout out to Dunedin Hospital Surgeons and Oncology Department because um, they managed to uh, help me through that physical crisis and um, 
it's nearly five years ago now and I'm all clear and fine and so we got through it despite it being stage three so uh, yeah it was an interesting interesting um, brush with death myself mm-hmm. really make sure you think I, I for me anyway I thought I'd examined all of my thinking about death pretty clearly um, through a number of different experiences with people dying and uh, then when you're confronted with your own it is actually quite different yep did all your friends rally around or did you find that some people couldn't be there for you yeah. in that way That's, that is one of the really interesting things when you're very very sick is um, the family packed in massively um, but some of the friends that I thought were good friends were really close friends stepped right out of a circle um, and other people and then some of my close friends were right there from the first minute right there but um, I had uh, other people who I had regarded pretty much as acquaintances um, and even I was self-employed at the time um, even some of my clients started visiting me on a regular basis it was amazing so it, it kind of made me realise that even when you've got a, a personal relationship with somebody this is such a big topic and such a fundamental thing that touches everybody at some point or other it makes you realise that people are all on their own somewhat different journey around it um, and I think particularly with cancer when people know that you've got cancer the first thing they think is that you're probably going to die and if you don't die this time around there'll be another time that it will come we have this tremendous fear of cancer um, my fear of cancer has been significantly mitigated because of the care I received but not many people have that opportunity to visit it at such close quarters so or you know to get through it that way um, so I'm, I'm really lucky. So it's about people's own re- people's own relationship with their thoughts about death and grief, yeah, and not wanting to see you upset or in pain, or to deal with their emotion about it, or to deal with your emotion about it. You know, it's it's a big complex topic. That's why it's important to talk about it. <laughs> so those people who were able to step up yep. and step into the ring, mm-hmm. what did they say or do that you found particularly helpful and supportive? Really, really simple stuff. Um, I didn't have anybody really saying... Well, mm, not saying the philosophical, deep and meaningful stuff or the esoteric stuff necessarily, just simple stuff. I had one lady that knitted me a pig. <laughs> she knew I had admired this knitted pig. She's a really good friend of mine. And she, I had admired this knitted pig in the window of a shop one day. And so as soon as she heard I was sick, she got the um, pattern and went and knitted me a pig. <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous, but those... Those kinds of simple, funny things um, kind of normalise your situation and they're, I don't know, they're kind of acts of love. 
and simple, very simple. And then lots of people, you know, bought food and, you know, the rector of the high school came to visit me to see how my son was doing and um, other people said, you know, look, you've got nothing to worry about, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll pack around and this is how we're going to take care of mum while you're sick and, you know, yeah. So simple logistics, operational, daily stuff plus these weird acts of love like little things. Now some people are very anxious about saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Was there anything that was said to you that was really unhelpful? Yes. What was that? I had a very close friend who was away uh, and when I texted him and said um, I'm sick, I'm in hospital, I've got cancer he texted back and said so what have you learned from that? And I felt that was spectacularly unhelpful because you are you're dealing with so many thoughts and uh, it, it felt abrupt and cruel like I was to blame and I don't know why people get cancer and I don't know whether I had lifestyle factors worrying too much, working too much, whatever but I, when you're sort of sitting in bed on day two of your diagnosis, having just had an operation, that's not helpful to hear that. Yeah. So that was the only really spectacularly unhelpful thing I, he- I heard. Yeah. And having had cancer, mm-hmm. um, and having had that experience now yourself, has it has it altered the way you live your life? Um. Probably not. (laughs) Okay, don't listen, my oncologist. Probably not massively. uh, Probably not massively. Because, like, I, I didn't have a bucket list and I don't have a bucket list. I've been really fortunate. I've done... I've lived a pretty selfish life in lots of ways. I've done all the things I've wanted to do. Um... I am aware that I need to take better care of myself. I try to do that. Um, I guess I try and keep myself out of ridiculous harm's way, but, you know, I try and eat more healthy food. I try and do a bit more exercise. But overall, I'd say no. I'd say I feel really lucky. I feel really fortunate. I'm still here. I'm still having fun. You know, nothing needs to change, really. Now, one of the things about you, Robin, um, certainly that struck me, is that you have been very open in talking about death and dying and cancer. Has it been helpful for you to do that? Yep, massively helpful. Um, I think because of the type of cancer I had and the fact that um, my magnificent surgeon, Mr Miller, he um, managed to connect all my internal plumbing up Um, for me Um, however as people who have had bowel cancer know you it changes your routine there is a whole new normal and uh, so I now know where I think every single toilet is in Dunedin because when you've got to go you've really got to go and 
that has meant at work that I've had to tell people um, so that they don't get offended if I leap out and rush, leap up and rush out of the room <laughs> in a big hurry saying, hold that thought, I'll be back in a minute. Um, and so, so it's necessary to tell people because of the, just the logistics of the thing, you've got to manage it. But also um, I want people to know that it's not... It's not necessarily the end, and even if it is the end, it's, I mean, it's going to be the end, of, end for all of us at some point. That's not the end of the world, if you know what I mean. So a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die. And at the end of the day, we're all going to die, and so panicking about it and worrying about it and spending your whole life governed by fear is only going to wreck what could otherwise be an amazing life no matter how long it is, you know? So, yeah, talking about it's good. Helpful for me and hopefully helpful for other people too. Robin, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, Because, of course, (laughs) um, by talking about it, it enables us to have this conversation. Yeah. And it's a difficult conversation. Mm. Difficult sometimes with ourselves and with others. Yeah. It ebbs and flows. So thank you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Café Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death. And, if you want to by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, there are some ways to get help. The best person to contact is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. 1737 Need to Talk? Just call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 354. The Suicide Crisis Helpline 0508 828 865. Youthline 0800 376 633 or text 234 between 8am and midnight. The Depression Helpline 0800 111 757. And Samaritans 0800 726 666. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.